Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. With that, we're going to go ahead and dive into the scripture this morning. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. It's a much shorter passage than most of what we're going through in the book of Daniel. Uh, that is because this is a, a very difficult passage. I'll talk about that in a moment. There's a lot of uh, arguments and difficulties regarding what uh, God is revealing to us. So Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, as always, it'll be up here on the screen. It's in the booklet, and I encourage you, bring a Bible always and follow along in the Scriptures. So let's hear now the word of our sovereign Lord and Redeemer. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have come now to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will rebuild with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. May God bless his word. The book of Daniel has some difficult and challenging passages in it, and none of them are more difficult than these seven verses that we just read. In fact, a number of scholars have said this is the graveyard of scholarship on Daniel. Everybody comes here to die with their opinions. Uh, it's very difficult. There are all kinds of divergent interpretations of the text. That's the bad news. The good news is, in 30 minutes, you all are going to understand everything about it, because I'm here, and I'm going to give you the final word. Uh, actually not. 
But I'm going to try and unpack this for us. And it's important for us to understand this because sometimes some of these difficulties have led to all kinds of problems. For example, a man named William Miller here in America in the 1800s read this passage and looked at it and came up with the calculation to say Jesus was going to return between March 1843 and March 1844. These things are always, it's going to happen in our day. Um, And he was wrong, but he revised it because he figured the calculations a little bit better, and it came out to April 1844. He was, again, obviously still wrong, but actually there are a large number of denominations that grew out of that movement that are still here today, including some very large denominations that grew out of that. And we've had a tendency to read these kind of texts and make them all about our day, okay? And they've all had one thing in common. They've all been wrong. Every one of those approaches have been wrong. So what does this text mean and how do we interpret it? I want to remind us of a passage we talked about earlier in the series that is absolutely essential to keep in mind because God has revealed this to us and how we handle prophetic and particularly apocalyptic scriptures. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron were fomenting a rebellion against Moses. And the Lord said this. He said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. What does that mean about the prophetic words? They're riddles. They're not as clear, okay? Very, very important. Anybody who tries to interpret the rest of the Bible around prophetic riddles is going to get themselves in deep trouble right from the beginning. Not because I say so, but because the Lord has already told us, understand this. When I'm revealing myself to prophets, it is a riddle. You ever watch movies or read a book and they've got all of these kind of riddles and you're like, man, that's just amazing that they unraveled that because nobody actually could have in real life in real time. Riddles are difficult. In fact, sometimes you don't really understand it until after the riddle has played itself out. And we're told here, this is what prophetic uh, passages and apocalyptic literature is about. So keeping in mind we're looking at a riddle, let's try and see if we can unravel a little bit, particularly looking at the rest of Scripture to see what it says. Now first, notice this is an answer to Daniel's prayer. It's not just a random passage. Last week we looked at Daniel 9, 1 to 19, where Daniel is praying and confessing his sins. So we see there in verse 21, Uh, To 23, he says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen earlier, and he used the word man there for an angel, uh, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So Gabriel's coming and giving an answer to Daniel's prayer. And notice we're given the little bit of intriguing information that it's the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, sacrifices have not been going on for over 50 years because the temple was desolated more than 50 years before. It had been destroyed. But Daniel says it would have been the time that the evening sacrifice would have happened, and that's a little clue to us as part of our riddle. Daniel's prayer is about sin. The answer comes at the time of the evening sacrifice, which dealt for sin, and we're going to see that the entire answer 
revolves around sin. But notice the last thing that Gabriel says there, therefore consider the message and understand the vision. This message is meant to give understanding. He says, Daniel, I've come to give you understanding, but you're going to have to consider, pay attention, ponder. Again, this is a bit of a riddle. So it's not going to lie right there on the surface. But I want us to see that the answer clearly, not just because of the time of evening sacrifice, but the prayer and the answer to the prayer are about three key things. Sin, the people of God, and the city of Jerusalem. Those three things are at the center. Notice in verse 20, Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, which is Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. So notice there are those three things. And then in verse 24, when Gabriel starts to give his answer, he says, 77s are decreed for your people, that's the people of God, the second thing, for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. So notice Daniel's praying about three things, and right at the beginning of the answer, we're given the same three things. It's about sin, it's about the people of God, and it's about what's going to happen to Jerusalem in the future. So God is here giving his prophetic promise to deal with the sin of his people and what's going to happen to Israel in the future. That's the broad outline of what we have. Now, Let's dive in then to start kind of laying out the riddle. What we're talking about in this is Messiah's work of sin, of salvation, and of judgment. Now, why do I say this? Number one, we've already mentioned that it's sin. Messiah is going to come and deal with the sin of his people. Notice in verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to do what? To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. These are three phrases, but they're kind of just like different facets of a single diamond. They're all dealing with the same thing. You have a sin problem, which is what Daniel's been confessing. You all are in the exile because you have been unfaithful. You have broken my covenant over and over and over again. Though I have warned you in the law what was going to happen, though the prophets came and warned you, you are going to have to uh, recognize that you have done this. And so the answer here is going to come dealing with transgression and sin and wickedness. I remind you that last week we saw Daniel use six different terms for sin because he was trying to give a full orb picture of his sin and the sin of his people. Here we're given three different terms, but all of them are saying God is going to deal with the sin of his people and he's going to do it by atonement. Now picture, Daniel's aware it's the time of the evening sacrifice for thousands of years. Priests have been there and they have sacrificed lambs that has been done over and over and over again and it has never dealt with the sin of the people. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament goes into this and in chapter 9 and 10 it really deals and it makes a big contrast. And we're told in Hebrews 9.26 that that the, the people had to keep offering the, sin, the, the sacrifices over and over and over again because they could never deal with sin. And if Jesus' sacrifice was just like theirs, we're told in verse 26 of Hebrews 9, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But, 
Got to love that word. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So notice this might be a little different. We, we think, oh, the end of the ages is talking about the second coming. No, it's not. It's talking about the first coming. Because the end of the ages is the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. And it's the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. Notice what it's done. It does away with sin. Friends, this is good news for you and I. Your sin is not partially dealt with. Your sin is done away with now and forever. There is is no more left. You're not going to get there on judgment day and God's going to say, well, Jesus took care of 99% of it, but you got to pay a little bit more. It is done. Paid in full. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what God is promising to Daniel. And that's done because Jesus, this other word of atonement, a passage we actually used when we came to the Lord's table recently, 1 John chapter 2. John has been writing about the sin of the people. And he says, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And notice, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, we lose sometimes, we don't, we don't understand. The word atonement The old translations use the word propitiation. We don't use that word anymore very often, so we've used atonement. But to propitiate means to appease the wrath. It means your sin and my sin are due righteous, holy wrath. But Jesus Christ has taken that wrath upon himself. And the sin is not going to be paid for twice. He has paid it in full. He has drank the cup of wrath. He has drank it to its dregs. It is empty and there is nothing but blessing for you and for me. That is the message of the gospel. That is what Christ has done for us. He has dealt with our sin fully, completely, forever. But there is more. Because notice the second thing that Gabriel tells him is to bring in everlasting righteousness. There is a flip side to atoning for sin. See, if all that happened was your sin was removed, you're back at the start line. But that's not all that's happened. Not only has your sin been removed, but Jesus Christ has earned righteousness for you and gives that righteousness to you so that you are accounted as if you had positively obeyed the law. It's not just every time you have broken the law. And friends, there is not a big enough supercomputer to compute all the sins of the people of God down through the ages. He has paid for all of those, removed all of those, and then transferred his righteousness to us. We sang this this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us. That's atoning for transgression and putting an end to sin and wickedness and doing all of that. But notice, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only did he take your sin and my sin, at the time ours was transferred to him, his righteousness was transferred to us. You remember in the Old Testament, they would bring down the lambs. And on on the Day of Atonement, there would be two lambs that would be brought down. And they would lay their hand on the one and it would be slain because sin was transferred. That was propitiation, bearing the wrath. Another one they put their hands on and it was sent away into the wilderness because the sin was being removed from the camp. As far as the east is from the west. But we're being told now, not only did God do that, at the same moment, the righteousness of the perfect Lamb of God is transferred back onto me. So I stand not only sinless, no transgression, no wickedness, no sin, but perfectly righteous. That's good news. Now notice, Paul says the same thing in Philippians. We could point this out many places, but Paul says, he's speaking, he says, everything that I had counted as righteousness before, I now count as dung. And he actually uses a little more graphic term than dung, okay? Paul's very graphic. This stuff is nothing. It is nothing to me because all I want is Christ. And I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from where? God. You want to know what's a good place on judgment day? When the holy God looks and says, is there any sin? And you can say, no, the lamb took it away. Well, where is your righteousness? I have the righteousness of God in my account. That's good news. Not, I did a decent job of keeping the Ten Commandments, because let's be honest, we didn't. We didn't even do a good job in our actions of keeping them, much less in my words, my attitudes, and my thoughts. But all of that's removed. Perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. And that's what God says he's going to give to his people. Friends, that is everlasting righteousness. And it's all the righteousness you or I are ever going to need. But thirdly, he goes on and he says, not only has Jesus dealt with our sin, he makes this interesting statement that uh, he's going to seal up vision and prophecy. Messiah is going to seal up uh, vision and prophecy. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at seal, but one of the things that happened with the seal, you remember in the ancient world, and you even see this some places today, when I was in Okinawa, uh, every month our our Papa-san, when we would pay our bill, Papa-san had a little seal that he would mark the thing with, okay? And in the ancient world, you would take a document, and they would actually put a, a wax seal on it that could not be broken. It was a sign that this thing was completed. It was done. And Messiah, Jesus, who's coming, is both the end of Old, he's the end of Old Testament prophecy in two senses. Number one, he was always its goal, and therefore, he's its conclusion. When the Messiah has come, the end credits are rolled. He has fulfilled what was there. Notice a couple of passages in the New Testament that speak about this. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 13, we read, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until who? 
John. See, John's the last. And Jesus goes on and says, look, I want you to understand. And none of them are as great as John the Baptist, but if you're least in the kingdom of heaven, you're in a better place than John's ever thought about being. See, this is exactly what God has done for us. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because the one about whom they prophesied is now here. There's no more need for their ministry. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. I want you to picture something. Every week, I get the privilege of standing up here speaking the word of God. But I want to assure you something. When you get to heaven and Jesus is speaking, I'm not going to jump up afterwards and say, I have something to add to that. Okay? No no way. When he has spoken, all is said. And so, when not the prophets of God, but the God of the prophets comes onto the scene, the eternal logos, the revelation of God, the word of God comes, all of the prophets close their mouth. God has spoken, and he has done it in Jesus Christ. And so, Gabriel reveals to Daniel prophecy is going to be sealed up. John the Baptist is going to come. He's going to be the final herald. and He's going to say everything we have talked about is here. And God will reveal himself in his son, the eternal word, Jesus. And this is again because Jesus is the focus of the whole Old Testament and specifically of the prophets. In Luke chapter 24, you remember Jesus is walking along with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's the day of the resurrection. And he's speaking to them about the prophets, and they're like the disciples always are in the Gospels, which is they're clueless. They don't get what's going on. And Jesus says to them in verse 25, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. Jesus sums up what prophecy is about. The Christ will come, and oddly enough, he's going to suffer, and then he's going to enter glory. And notice Jesus tells them they have been slow to believe. Everything's about him, but these two disciples, and in fact, all the other disciples, have been slow to believe. But in fact, it's not just the disciples. All Israel missed it or unbelieving Israel missed it. We're going to come back to that in a couple of minutes because sad to say, and this is part of the shock to Daniel, they think they're going home from exile and all is going to be all right. It's actually going to get worse because when God himself comes, how will they respond? There's something far worse than the exile. So notice the prophets, and this includes Daniel 9, 26 and 27, they speak of Jesus' suffering and death and entering into his glory, which Jesus is saying is already done there on the day of the resurrection. That is what they are about. Now, I've been saying all this is about Messiah, but Messiah hasn't actually been mentioned in the text yet. But Gabriel brings that up in verses 24 to 26. The last of those early phrases is to anoint the most holy. The Hebrew phrase there is actually the holy of holies, okay? 
Kodesh Kodeshim, the, the Holy of Holies, which is their way of saying the most holy place. Now, this would be the interior part of the sanctuary. That's why some of your translations actually say anoint the most holy place. But really, the idea we know, starting down in verse 25, it doesn't speak of the holy place, but rather the anointed one. The word is Mashiach, the Messiah, when the anointed one comes. And then in verse 28, we read after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. Now see, remember, Daniel's praying not only regarding sin, but he's also praying regarding uh, the temple, okay, Jerusalem and the temple. But what's being revealed here is the most holy that's going to be anointed is not a rebuilt building in Jerusalem, that's not the concern. That building is going to re be rebuilt in short order, but the true tabernacle, the true temple is Jesus. It always was. Friends, if you are reading the Old Testament and you're not seeing everything as a pointer to Jesus Christ, you're not reading it correctly. So notice, when John uh, writes his prologue, and we hear these words all the time, but we you know, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling. The phrase is literally tabernacled. See, God had a tabernacle for His people when they were in exile, when they were in, out in the wilderness. There was a tabernacle that was for them. And John is saying, the tabernacle has finally come. See, that tent was just a pointer forward to the temple, which was just a pointer forward to the real tabernacle, the real temple, Jesus Christ. I won't take the time to go there right now, but if you remember in John chapter 2, Jesus uh, is having an argument with the Pharisees, and he tells them, you know, destroy the temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they say, oh, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple, because they're thinking physical building. But John tells us Jesus wasn't talking about that. He's talking about the temple of his body. He is the real temple that is to come. And so Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, who came to atone for the sins of God's people, giving them righteousness, fulfilling all the prophets had foretold, and being the true temple of God in the earth. Now, that's the first part of the message, but God has to reveal to Daniel what that means and how that relates to where they're at. And so Jesus' work as the Messiah is in with the new and out with the old. In with the new and out with the old. Now, why do I say that? Now, first off, notice there are these 77s, okay? And what is all of that about? We're told in verse 24 you know, 77s are decreed for your people to do these things. Down in verse 25, we read, uh, when the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there's going to be seven sevens and 62 sevens, which, of course, is 69. And then we read further on that after the 62 sevens, the anointed one's going to be cut off and have nothing. We're going to told he actually makes a covenant uh, and is cut off in the middle of that 70th seven. So there are seven sevens and 62 sevens and one seven, um, and it's laying out when these things are going to happen. Now, the sevens are built upon Sabbath. 
Sabbath is there. Every seven days there's a Sabbath. Every seven years there's a Sabbath year. And after seven sevens, there's a year of Jubilee. All of this is about Jubilee coming for the people of God. That's what the message is about. And you remember, we, we saw it last week, God sent them into exile because he said, you've not given the land its Sabbath rest. So all the years you go away, the 70 years are going to be for the land to get its Sabbath rest. So Everything we know about what's going on and what Daniel's praying about tells us, look at Leviticus 25 and 26, uh, that they point us to Sabbath and the Jubilee pattern. Now, I'm not going to go into this morning exactly how to add up the numbers and stuff and what that means. There are, this is one of the places that there's a lot of disagreement. If you are interested in this sort of thing, you can look on, on Tuesday and after hours, I will lay out three main understandings of how to do the 409 or the 77s are they actually years or not and what all of that 77s means uh, I'll go over that in detail and after hours you can you can dig in and find out and talk about it but I want us to see much more important than that are what's going to happen and what's going to happen is salvation and judgment there's going to be the bringing in of the new covenant and the end of the Old Covenant. Now, one of the things that goes on is some people get confused in verses 26 and 27 because there's a lot of pronouns, a lot of he's, and the question always is, well, which he are we talking about? Because there's at least a couple of different he's that are going on uh, here in the text. And so we have to try and figure it out. But what's going on actually is parallelism. Hebrew uses this all the time in writing. It's oftentimes A and what's more B. But one of the ways that Hebrew does it is a pattern that is A, B, A, B. We say the same thing and then we say it again. We give a little bit more detail in that second iteration. And notice here what I've got in yellow at the beginning of verse 26 and at the beginning of verse 27 are talking about the same person, the same time, the same activity. And they're both dealing with salvation. What's in the orange is talking about the same time, the same events, the same people, but they're not dealing with salvation, they're dealing with judgment. One is dealing, the yellow is dealing with salvation and the ushering into the new covenant, the work of Jesus the Messiah. The orange is dealing with the end of the old covenant, judgment, and what is in fact going to happen to Jerusalem uh, in this time of the fourth kingdom that we've read about over and over in the book of Daniel. So part A is dealing with a sacrifice for sins. So if you notice in verses 26 and 27, this is the part that was in yellow that we just had. Notice what we're told is after the 62 sevens. So we're at the end of 69 of the 77s, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And furthermore, we're told in verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many. For one seven, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now what it's talking about here, the anointed one is the Messiah. And we're being told, oddly enough, when the Messiah comes, and remember, see, this is the problem. What did Jesus have to fight with constantly? What did people think Messiah was going to do? 
come in and deal with the Romans. You're going to come in and you're going to deal with the fourth kingdom. You're going to smash them. You're going to do it. But see, we're being told here, no, actually Messiah is going to come in. And just exactly what Jesus said, all the prophets said, Messiah must suffer, then enter glory. And so here, the anointed one will be cut off. He will be put to death. He will have nothing. This phrase actually comes from Isaiah 53. I'd encourage you, if you just read Isaiah 53, it is a rich background for what's happening here in Daniel chapter 9. But in Isaiah 53, 8, we're reading about the Messiah, and we're told, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? See, this is he has nothing. It appears all is lost. But notice what Isaiah goes on and says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. Cut off is also an interesting term because it not only denotes death, it's also how you made a covenant. You cut a covenant is what you did because there was death involved. And so the Messiah here is cut off from the land of the living, but why? For the transgression of my people he was stricken. You remember Daniel's confessing sins, and who's he specifically confessing sins for? The people of God. And so the Messiah is going to come, but he's going to be cut off because he's going to be stricken for the sins of the people of God. Furthermore, in verse 27, we're told he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now that sounds weird to us, for many, but this phrase is used all over the scripture, and it means the people of God's covenant. Let me show you, I'll just show you four places in the New Testament, there are many more, and you'll, uh, well actually one's in the Old Testament, you'll recognize a number of these. First, in Isaiah 53, 11, so the same Isaiah text, it's such good background. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify what? Many. Many. See, and Gabriel says, look, Daniel, go back, read Isaiah 53. He's going to justify many, the people of God. And so he's going to confirm a covenant with many. Notice in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you look um, at Matthew chapter 26, the Lord's Supper. Jesus is instituting the new covenant. And as the old covenant is fading and the new covenant is being instituted, Passover is becoming the Lord's table. Notice what Jesus says. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Notice it's the same stuff going on in, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. We have many. It is the Messiah, the anointed one doing this work. It is the confirming of a covenant, and it is dealing with sin. The exact same message. And we say this all the time. We just don't think that it says many. Paul builds this out in Romans chapter 5. He does a lot of this throughout Romans 5, 12 uh, to 21. But he says this, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many 
will be made righteous. Now, he doesn't mean that only some people inherited Adam's sin. What he's saying is there's a group that is identified as being in Adam. They are the many, and those many are receiving sin and judgment. But thanks be to God, there's another group. And that other group is the many who are in the second Adam. They are in Jesus Christ. And what they are receiving is not sin and judgment, but righteousness and salvation. The phrase, the many, is all over, and all of these are used to show this is God's covenant people. The many are those who are in God's covenant. And what we're seeing is Jesus has enacted the new covenant. He's sitting there the night he's betrayed, and he says, I am bringing in the new covenant. My blood is going to be shed to seal this covenant. It's not going to be the blood of bulls and goats and all types and shadows. This will be real cleansing of sin, real uh, fulfillment of all of God's promises and provisions, and it's going to be done for the many. Your sins will be taken away. And this is why Gabriel says in verse 27, in the middle of the week, and again, I'll go over why I think that phrase is there. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering for sin. Now, some have taken this as being the Antichrist and he's stopping a reconstituted temple. That's not what the whole passage is about. The passage is about Jesus putting an end to sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so notice in the book of Hebrews, again, Hebrews 9 and 10 goes over this consistently, but if Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, and then we'll jump down to verse 18. He's got a quote from the Old Testament in between. But notice it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. When you read that, you've got to read it with a sense of monotony. It is every day. We are doing it again. I offered an animal yesterday, but I sinned today, and I'm back down here today, and I'll be back down here tomorrow again and again and again and again because they don't really take away my sin. It doesn't really deal with it. But notice he says in verse 12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And that sitting down means the work is done. I'm not coming back tomorrow. I'm not redoing it again. This has been done once for all uh, to sacrifice for sins. Since then, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because, notice, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What an interesting phrase. If you are a Christian, you are still being made holy. Who in here still struggles with sin? Who in here has been made perfect forever? See, both are true. He has put an end to your sin. Because before God, it is cleansed. It is done with. It is washed away. And so he comes back in verse 18 and says, And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Once Jesus has done this, what if I show up the next day with a little goat down at the temple? What's there to be washed away? Nothing. It's utterly 
redundant. I have no need to go down and do it again. After the one sacrifice, the old covenant sacrificial system is done away. It is the end of sacrifice and offering for sin. When he cried out on the cross, somebody be with you, what what were Jesus' last words? It is finished. Done. In Greek, it's one word. Tetelestai. Completed. The goal. Everything it was working for is done. And in the temple, the curtain is ripped in half. Old covenant gone, new covenant in all done by the Son of God. And friends, this is not something we wait for. It is something that is already done. Now, that leaves the second half of those verses, which is judgment that is going to come. And this is a fearful thing. Because not only is Messiah doing it, remember there was a second phrase which was about judgment, and this is going to deal with that fourth kingdom that Daniel's been so concerned about. And he says... The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And in fact, in verse 27, he comes back, he says, on a wing, and it doesn't have the words of the temple. That's kind of implied there is why they put that in. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Has anybody ever heard of the abomination that causes desolations? This is where the phrase comes from, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now here's the fearful thing. All of this is given to Daniel, and it's given to God's old covenant people, Israel. But see, there's a problem. Israel went into exile because some of Israel believed, and some did not believe. And Coming back from exile does not change that. And so, in fact, when the Messiah comes to Old Covenant Israel, do they all receive him? You can read a parable. I won't take the time this morning, but in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46, remember Jesus tells a parable. He says, hey, it's like there's a vineyard, and the owner uh, you know, rents it out. And the people are taking care of it, and he keeps sending servants to them, and they beat this servant up, and they send this one away, and then they kill that servant. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they will respect my son. But what's their response? Oh, this is the heir. If we kill him, we can take over the vineyard. And we're not left to wonder what it's talking about. And Jesus says, what's going to happen? It says the vineyard's going to be taken away and given to those who are worthy of the vineyard. And we're told the Pharisees and the other leaders were furious because they knew Jesus was talking about them. That's exactly what he was saying. He's saying, I came and you have refused the Messiah. And make no mistake, as glorious as it is, that those who are part of the covenant, those who respond in faith, have their sins removed and righteousness given to them, those who reject the Messiah are left in their sin. And so, it's prophesied here that the ruler who's going to come is going to destroy the temple and the sanctuary. You've got to understand how this rocks Daniel. 
The temple hasn't even been rebuilt yet, and he's already being told it's going to get destroyed when it does get rebuilt. And in fact, this is even going to be worse. Now, the fact is, the temple was already desolate before Rome showed up. Jesus, right before he was crucified, says this in Matthew 23. This is when he's pronounced seven woes from the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel who were unbelieving. And he pronounced the seven woes, and then he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember Daniel's prayer is about Jerusalem, about the holy hill? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. Remember the parable? This is what you've done. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house, what's your house? The temple. It's left to you how? Desolate. Spirit of God gone. That is nothing but a pile of blocks. Gone. And in fact, Jesus walks on. You can look at Matthew 24 and the disciples as they walk away hearing this, being oblivious, are like, isn't this building awesome? And Jesus looks and says, not one stone's going to be left on another. Not one stone. And the disciples say, when is this going to happen? Now you need to understand, when Jesus pronounces it desolate, the Spirit is gone. Did they continue operating the temple for 40 more years? They repaired the curtain. They kept rolling the little lambs through. They kept saying, we're doing an offering for sin. This is a sweet smelling to Yahweh. And Yahweh said, it makes me sick. I want nothing to do with it. The sacrifice has already been given. It's done. Make no mistake, those sacrifices from when Jesus made that pronouncement, they are an abomination. That's what they are. Every day, abomination on top of abomination on top of abomination because what you're saying is Jesus' sacrifice is not good enough. I need my sacrifices. His righteousness, not good enough. I need to add mine onto it. That's exactly what they're saying. And so Jesus said this was going to happen. And notice he tells the disciples not one stone's going to be left upon another. And their question, we misread Matthew 24 all the time. Their question is simple. When will this happen? When will what happen? When will one stone not be left upon another? Well, we know the answer to that question. 70 A.D. That's what it was about. That's when not one stone was left upon another. So notice, later on in Matthew 24, Jesus says this. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, we have a good thing going for us. Matthew is writing to Jews, and so he tells us that. Luke is writing to Gentiles. And so he doesn't assume they've read the prophet Daniel 
and that they will understand the abomination that causes desolation. So he records it in Luke and says this, when you see not the abomination that causes desolation, standing in the holy place, spoken about the broad day, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that it's desolation here. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. It's the same, it's the same story. Luke's just interpreted it. What is the abomination that causes desolation? The fourth king has come, and he's going to come down on this house. And when he's done with this house, it's not going to be like when Nebuchadnezzar did it. You all went back and rebuilt that one. When he's done, it's done. But it's done because it had already served its purpose. There is no need. It was all done. Josephus, in his book Antiquities, actually tells us what Josephus was a leading general against the Romans. Then he got defeated, joined in with the Romans, wrote the history of what went on, and describes in great terrible detail what happened when Rome swept into Israel. And he tells us, it's not like we weren't warned. God told us through Daniel this was going to happen. This is the abomination of desolation. It was right there in 70 AD. And so we need to understand. I mean, it's terrible and it's judgment. But the temple was already devoid of the Spirit. It had no more purpose. Friends, if I, instead of doing this, if we came at the end, I brought a little lamb in here and slit its throat and said, your sins are forgiven, you all should stone me or do something. Run out of here screaming. Don't say yes. Oh, that, that helped. It didn't. It's already been paid. It is done. And so all of this combined, what it's telling us is Messiah is going to come. He's going to fulfill the old covenant. He's going to establish the new covenant, which is going to bring full salvation for his people, but it also has judgment on those who reject his sacrifice. Now, how do we apply this? What does it mean to us? It's very simple. There's only really one question today, and we come to the Lord's table. How have I responded to Christ. See, everything in this passage is Daniel saying, we've got this sin problem. And God says, I'm going to answer the sin problem. And the sin problem is going to be answered through Messiah. He's going to take away sin and he is going to give righteousness. His atoning death will bear the wrath remove the sin, establish us as the forgiven, justified people of God, covered forever with the righteousness of God. But many people in Israel who had been crying out, oh, when will Messiah come? When will Messiah come? When he came, they rejected him. It's not just Israel. It's, it's every, that, that's the thing that stands before every one of us. How do we respond to the work of Jesus Christ? And make no mistake, those who reject it, and please note, it wasn't, just, it, it wasn't like this was difficult to figure out. Jesus showed them again and again and again and again, and they rejected it. And then even when he predicted he was going to be raised from the dead, they stuck guards down there, and then he was raised from the dead. Surely at that point you say, okay, game's up. Except they don't. They absolutely 
do not. They continue on because they are more interested in their system, their way, establishing their own righteousness. We're not at a temple in Jerusalem. We're not, but friends, the same exact question is before you and me. God's Messiah has come. Atonement has been offered. Everything is freely given to us. Will we embrace Christ's sacrifice or will we spurn it? It's very simple. And every human being is going to answer that question. Every human being, in Paul's words in Romans 5, on that day, as it were, this is a metaphor, okay? It's not a little bit. On the final day, there's going to be two lines in front of the judgment throne of God. Adam's going to be at the head of one, and Jesus Christ is going to be at the head of the other. And you will either be in the many behind Adam or the many behind Christ. And friends, I urge you, if you're behind Adam, you're going to stand there in your own lack of righteousness, covered with your own sin, trying to make your own way, and you will not survive. And nor will I. But see, this is our default. This is what everybody does. I used to, for years, people would come to our office and I would share the gospel with them. And I would say, if I'm standing in front of God on Judgment Day, you know, you and I both died right now. And I'm standing in front of God on Judgment Day. And he asked me, why should I let you into heaven? What should I say? And person after person after person that grew up here in America, they could tell me what church they were from. All of these other kinds of things. Their answer was, tell him you're a pastor. Yeesh, that's not going to work. Tell him you kept the Ten Commandments. See, you just met me, but I haven't. It was always works, 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 works. And then when I would say no, and I would show them the gospel, oh, I believe that. If you did, that wouldn't have been your answer a minute ago. Your answer was, oh God, look at me. I I think I'm ready for this test. No, you're not. You're not ready for this test. My only plea is Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not even theology or all that. I encourage you to study all that stuff. You can have doctorate piled on top of doctorate. It's a question of, are you in Christ? Has he borne your sin? Is your only hope that I have nothing else. It's the rock of ages. He is the cleft for me. I am in him. His righteousness covers me. That is my only hope. And if God stares at you and says, what's your plan B? Your answer better be, there is no plan B. That's it. And it's good enough. Because God says, you're right, that is good enough. Any other hope? Friend, I urge you, I urge you with everything in me, if you are here or if you are listening online and you have not responded to the gospel, please cry out to Jesus Christ. It's not about my good stuff outbang my bad or anything difficult. It is about saying Jesus is enough. I'm looking to him. And if you want to talk about it, please lay a hold of me and we will chat afterwards. With that, we're going to go ahead and come to the table. And we're going to look at the fact that this table is the table of the new covenant. See, we're told by Paul 
that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's done once and for all. And so I'm going to begin today, I'm going to read Hebrews 8, 6 to 13, and I want you to hear the writer to Hebrews because this is the glorious reality that you and I live in. He's comparing Jesus throughout the book to everybody, angels, Moses, Joshua, your priests, prophets, you name it. He's comparing them to everybody, and guess who's better every time? Jesus. And listen to what he says. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. That's the exile. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. All that's quoting out of Jeremiah. And then the writer to Hebrews, writing just before 70 AD, appends this note. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Friends, the covenant you have will never be obsolete. It will never be aging. It is the covenant where our sins are removed. If you are part of God's new covenant people, I invite you now to his table. For on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. He said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the new covenant people of God. If you can go ahead and take your cup and peel back the first part, we will get ready to take the bread. Father, you are a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. But we humans have broken your covenant through the ages. 
in the garden, Adam and Eve broke it to eat the fruit and to determine good and evil for themselves. Your people Israel violated your covenant time and again, worshiping other gods and even rejecting your son. But the problem was never your covenant. It has always been our sin. So through your prophets, you promised a new covenant fulfilled by Messiah so that it might not depend on us. In taking this bread as a sign of our faith in Jesus the Messiah and his obedience in our place, we give you thanks that his righteousness is given to us in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Jesus, you are the mediator of the new covenant. You not only obeyed the law in our place, but you took our sins upon you, paying the price for sin so that we might be forgiven, cleansed, and made pure. We take this cup as a sign of our faith that through your atoning blood, we are the covenant people of God forever. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. And let's stand together. And as we do, if you are used to kind of our normal liturgy or form here, I'm going to be crying out to the Holy Spirit another great gift in the new covenant is the Holy Spirit no longer dwells in a building somewhere away. He no longer rests upon a few prophets, priests, and kings. Friends, the Spirit is given to you and to me. So please cry out with me. Holy Spirit, apart from you, we are powerless to walk in covenant obedience. Before you regenerated us, we were children of disobedience, slaves to sin. And even now, as God's children, we continue to struggle with sin, breaking God's law and thought, word, and deed. But you are the spirit of promise, dwelling in us, writing the law upon our hearts and our minds, empowering us to resist sin and obey God, and always working to conform us to Christ. Holy Spirit, come upon us now in fresh Pentecostal power. Fill us to overflowing, transforming our desires, renewing our minds, empowering us and our wills to walk in the ways of God. Spirit of the living God, walk with us throughout this week, producing your fruit in us, manifesting your gifts through us, so that we might serve our God by serving others. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant 
brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip you with everything good, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are blessed. Go forth and spread God's blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.